church, with His church uh, in Christ Jesus. And so what we find is that church membership is it's critical, it's a command, it's important, and, and it's there for our edification. And so as a part of the keeping our church uh, pure and practicing what God would have us to do, we have membership class, and so upon completion of this, our members uh, get to go through and they go, all right, well, uh, they get this covenant letter of membership. I want to read it for us one more time. Uh, I know I read it last week, but uh, I don't think any of y'all memorized it last week, did you? Okay. I didn't either, if it makes you feel any better, okay? So don't, don't sweat that. But church membership covenant letter, this is essentially the vows of the church member that's saying, I want to join the membership of Victory Baptist Church today. And upon signing this and upon... Uh, 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 you know, all in favor, raising of hands and all that good stuff. Then we get to bring uh, Miss uh, Ann Ford into membership here at Victory Way. And so we're grateful that she's been here with us and grateful for her heart. Uh, but I want to read for us just that you know what she's signing to. And as well as a reminder for every church member, uh, whether you just got added last week or whether you've been here since, the, you know, they built the place. Uh, here's what we are called to do. We are called to be an examples uh, to those who are new members, we are called to be encouragement to them. And we are called as well to hold up to the same standard of church membership that we would do so as unto Christ. And so uh, the letter says this, Having been saved by the free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ's atoning death, burial, and resurrection for the remission of sins, and having been baptized in public profession of faith in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, do now agree to covenant membership with a local body of believers, Victory Way Baptist Church. By God's grace, I will personally and publicly seek to fulfill the mission to know Christ and make Him known. By God's grace, I will personally and publicly seek to do my part in fulfilling the vision that Victory Baptist Church strives to be a unified body of believers who daily seek to glorify God in our community through genuine worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. By God's grace, I will be committed to genuinely and consistently worship Jesus both in private and publicly gathered with Victory Way Baptist Church. By God's grace, I will be committed to genuine discipleship by both growing as a disciple of Christ and seeking to see that others are discipled. By God's grace, I will be committed to the fellowship of and with the members of Victory Way Baptist Church as we all seek to fulfill the mission and vision as a local church. By God's grace, I will be committed to personal outreach with the gospel of Christ and will be committed to the outreach programs done through Victory Baptist Church and missions giving and evangelistic efforts. By God's grace, I will faithfully join myself to Victory Way Baptist Church in obedience to the Scriptures as a member of Christ's church and in agreement with Victory Way Baptist Church's statement of faith, covenant, and bylaws. So, Miss Ann Ford, once you come on down, I'll let you sign your life away. And uh, we are so glad to have you join us today. And membership is uh, of Victory Way Baptist Church. So, while she's signing this, so that way she can't see how y'all vote, I guess. Uh, all in favor of bringing Miss Ann into membership here at Victory Way Baptist Church. Would you signify by raising of hands? Oh, today's date. Does anybody know today? The 15th. By the way, they all raised their hand. Any opposed? Nobody opposed. Well, with that being said, Miss Ann, it is a pleasure to have you added to membership here at Victory Way Baptist Church. We're grateful for you. All right, let me run over here grab my bulletin. I meant to grab that earlier. All right. Here we go. All right. I'm not even going to walk back up those stairs. That's, that's too long of a walk right now. <laughs> I didn't stretch this morning. All right. Here's what we got. A few announcements here. Uh, sight and sound trip. For those of you who are going on the trip, the balance of your funds are due October 22nd. So that is coming up next week. All right. So if you're going on the trip, make sure you pay up. All right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But uh, it'll be a good time, good trip for the seniors. And uh, I know they're looking forward to it uh, as well. Uh, grateful to see all that good candy coming in 
in the lobby there. I've had so many folks who have said, it's the good candy, okay? So thank you guys for that. That's why we put it there. And I'm glad to see y'all all know what good candy is, all right? It's chocolate. It's good stuff. All right. Uh, but please continue to bring in donations of the pre-wrapped good candy to the church by October 25th for the church to pass out at the Hillsville Safe uh, Trunk or Treat evening on October 31st. Uh, all that candy is going to be placed into bags with gospel tracts, church invitations. And uh, right now we're at about 2,500 pieces of candy. So we're about halfway there of what our goal of 5,000 pieces was. Last year we had about 1,000 pieces and we ran out in about 10 minutes. So we want to be able to get the gospel out and candy out to uh, families and kids and have some good gospel conversations. So if you can help out with that, we would greatly appreciate it. Then next week, it is finally upon us, our conference here. We've been announcing it forever. You are absolutely probably sick of me talking about it. Uh, so after next week, you won't have to hear me say anything else about it until the next time it happens, maybe Lord willing. But Friday, October 20th, and Saturday, October 21st, the Living in Spite of Conference. If you plan to attend, deadline for registration, and it is a very loose deadline, but it is still a deadline uh, by tomorrow so that we can plan for food and everything else. But if you're interested in coming, either that Friday or Saturday or both days, uh, sign up in the back, and then if you're interested in volunteering, we got some few, few places to help out there. But we've got several speakers coming in. Uh, we are looking forward to it. We've got the Ashley family. It is their ministry in spite of ministries. Uh, he'll be coming, and he'll be preaching for us uh, that Friday and Saturday several times as well. He's going to preach for us next Sunday morning, so looking forward to that. And next Sunday as well, I forgot to announce it during our, during our Sunday school, but I'll do it now. Uh, John's lovely wife is going to teach a lady Sunday school class next Sunday. So perhaps, ladies, if you don't come to Sunday school regularly, you might want to come to this one. I believe she's going to have some good godly wisdom and some help for you. Uh, and then the guys will be stuck with either me or John or somebody. But uh, we'll, we'll have a good time too, all right? We might eat snacks or something, not tell the ladies. Uh, <laughs> anyway, why not? I rat it out. Don't eat the good candy. That's right. Quality control. Uh, Sunday, October 29th, we're having our third annual Fabulous Fall Family Fun Fling Ding and Chili Cook-Off. So if you want to come out for that, I hope you do. Uh, we'll have a great time. Bring a pot of chili, and if you don't like chili, we'll have other stuff there too. Uh, but bring whatever uh, to share and eat. We'll have uh, some uh, probably cornbread and all that stuff too, uh, drinks, and, and uh, bring some desserts to share. But we'll have prizes for uh, the crowd uh, favorite best overall chili. And then hottest chili, and we've got door prizes as well. Uh, so make sure you come, and we'll have a good time. But that'll be Sunday, October 29th at 5 o'clock, all right? So no PM service that night. We'll be having our fellowship that night. Looking forward to it. Invite some friends out for it as well. And then for all the men that are planning on going to the men's prayer advance, if you haven't gone before or if you haven't gone in a long time, I encourage you to join us. We had a great time last year, and I believe the Lord will give you some good help. But the deposit is due uh, uh, November the 5th, and make sure you sign up on the back so that we know how many hotel rooms and, and all that stuff to get. Uh, with all that being said, we'll read for us a verse of Scripture, and we're going to pray and stand and worship the Lord today. Uh, Psalm 40 tells us in verse 16 and 17, Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tearing, O my God. Here's what we find today. How many of you feel that you're poor? <laughs> no, the rest of you just don't want to admit it. How many of you feel that you're needy? Well, you might not want to admit that either, but here's what we find. Like the psalmist, we are poor and needy and we need the Lord. And what we find is that those of us that are poor and needy, yet we, well, we understand this, the Lord thinketh on me. The Lord thinketh on you. To think that God thinks about me is kind of unthinkable, isn't it? But yet He does think about us. And so because of that, 
We can trust that he is our help and our deliverer, and we can trust as well that today that we should seek him and rejoice and be glad in him, and that the Lord would be magnified today in all that we say and do. So with that, let us pray. Father, we want to come to you this day. We want to thank you for this time that we can gather and worship you, Lord. We do want to pray this morning a special time to pray for Israel, your people. God, we pray for their protection. We pray for their deliverance. We pray for their peace. And ultimately, that Christ would return. We do pray that during this time of of tribulation that they're facing, Lord, that souls would be saved, that the gospel would go forth from the Christians that are there. Uh, Lord, uh, we do want to pray that this morning that we would set apart this time and our hearts would be lifted up to you. Uh, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. God, we're grateful uh, for another week that you've added to the membership here at Victory Way. And Lord, for the, the commitment uh, of each one that has joined, but as well as the commitment of your people that are here. Lord, may we uh, be surrendered to you today, yielded to your spirit. And Lord, that Christ would be magnified and lifted up, that the name of Jesus would be glorified in all that we say and do. Lord, guard our minds, our hearts, our tongues, rid us of all distractions. God, that you would uh, help us to be united today in fellowship and as we worship you. Uh, and Lord, we just are grateful for this opportunity that we can gather and meet today. Uh, Lord, we uh, lift up this time to you, and we ask that you would have your will in your way. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Good to be in the Lord's house. Glad you're in the Lord's house. Now we're going to put you to work. got to stand up. If you're able, please stand. We'll sing our first song, hymn number 308, There is a Redeemer. Praise the Lord for that. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us, Am I holding my mic too close? I hear ringing or something. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Thank you. 
song is hymn number 224 we have come into his house for a reason by the way we have come into his house psalm 122 1 tells us a song of degrees of david and he said i was glad when they said unto me let us go into the house of the lord this is the lord's house it's not mine it's not the pastor's this is the Lord's house, and we come here to worship Him. We have come into His house. We have come into His house and gathered in His name to worship Him. We Christ. Let's forget about ourselves and magnify his name and worship Christ the Lord. Worship him, Christ the Lord. Amen to that. First Peter 1.8 tells us, Whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Our next song is hymn number 92, Oh, How I Love Jesus. Because he first loved us. First John 419. Second verse. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect. 
Shake hands, give a hug, share a smile, say hello, make everyone feel welcome. It's good to have everyone here. You sit. Good to see a lot of handshaking and smiles and hellos. If y'all would, kindly make your way back to your seat. And we have very special, special this morning. Our own little Josie and her dad, Stephen, going to sing a song this morning. We're so happy about that. Looking forward to it.
his praises one day when sin was as black as could be jesus came forth to be born of a virgin and dwelt among men my example is he word became flesh and the light shined among us his glory revealed as living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified freely
Very inspirational. Y'all come on up. We got another special, special today. <laughs> Our own beloved Hunter growed up in this church. Some of you may not know him, but he's been here since he was a little boy, and we love him dearly and glad he's here. And he brought his uh, bride to be. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> I don't think he engaged yet. Boy, I stuck my foot in my mouth there, didn't I? But anyway, his girlfriend and her sister and Miss Lynn going to sing a special. Y'all got enough mics? It was ringing there a minute ago. Don't get too close to one another. Okay. Your love is still a 
story each day. I fall on my knees, because your grace still amazes me. Your grace still amazes me. It's deeper, it's wider. amazing and higher than anything well I trust and prayed that all our music today would glorify the Lord and please him we want to please him we want to worship him when we come in his house so it looks like to me I don't have a final say in the matter but it looks like to me we're doing a pretty good job on that today that's some beautiful music beautiful songs beautiful message we just pray that it pleases the Lord. Please uh, go to prayer with me. Our Father, our God in heaven, we, we love you. Thank you for first loving us. And thank you, Lord, for the songs that's been sung today. We pray, Lord, it will be pleasing to you and honored you and glorified you, the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust and pray, Lord, that the rest of this service will do the same. We pray, Lord, for our pastor. And ask your God that you'd bless him and strengthen him. And Lord, give him a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit. And uh, give him wisdom and uh, liberty to preach and proclaim the message that you've given him for your church, your people here today. We also pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Israel, Lord, for all that turmoil going on over there. We know that the final peace will only be when... You come, Lord Jesus, but in the meanwhile, we pray for your beloved city of Jerusalem and your beloved people of the nation of Israel. Please help them and protect them and keep them safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you are able, please stand. We'll sing one more song here. A beautiful, beautiful song, Behold Our God. I really get excited singing this song. 
And uh, Can't Help It is just an amazing song. Behold our God. Revelation 11:15 tells us, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen to that. Behold our God. Who has filled the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? Behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore. second seat there. That's a beautiful song.
Amen. What a great day of worship thus far. As I like to remind us every now and again, I think we need to be reminded is that the worship doesn't stop because we stop singing. The worship continues as the Word is preached, as we respond uh, to what God has for us today. And so grateful for how He orchestrates and brings things together. Grateful to see family singing together. And, and that's how it's supposed to be, by the way. God calls and, and saves uh, individuals. He saves moms and dads to raise up children, to serve the Lord with them and to teach them what it means. And so what an example that is of generations of godliness. And so grateful for that this morning, the encouragement that is. And as well, both songs so fitting to what we've been talking about over the past few weeks has been looking at Job. Uh, but as well to see that our only hope is the fact that Christ has come. He loved us. He died for us. He rose again. And one day He is coming. And it will be a glorious day. And that until that glorious day, we are to glorify Him. His grace is great, uh, and His grace allows us now to live this Christian life. His grace allows us now to come to His Word and to receive uh, meat from it. So take your Bible, turn with me to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. Right now, if you've been here the past two weeks, you're going, you just jumped 40 chapters, how are we doing that? Well, we'll get into it uh, a little bit. But uh, we've been looking at the school of suffering, learning the lessons and taking the tests of faith. We've been talking the past few weeks, and it's been some hard weeks to see the lessons and to take these tests of faith as we've looked at the life of Job and in chapters 1 and 2. We've seen the difficulty that he faced, but we have seen that uh, his faith had remained uh, steadfast, that he praised the Lord in the midst of such wreckage, and that we saw later on beyond chapter 2 uh, that we have an advocate, a mediator that Job could not see, that he wished for, but that you and I see because the veil is gone, Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross for our sins, bearing the weight of our sins, bearing the wrath of God to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins, to offer redemption and eternal life to all who repent and believe. When He did that, the veil of the temple was torn, and now we have free access, not by our works, but by His works. The, the precious blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us of all sins and all unrighteousness and draws us into fellowship with Him. And because of this wonderful truth, we see that we have a mediator when we suffer, when we are going through trials and difficulties unimaginable. And today what we're going to see as we wrap up uh, this series in preparation for next weekend's conference is this, that we need to turn our trials into a testimony. Today we're looking at chapter 42, turning trials into a testimony. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak, I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering." See, Job back then wanted a mediator back in chapter 9, and now he's acting as one. It shows you what God does in the midst of trials. Furthermore, he says, And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, and that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job. I want you, through that passage, underline my servant Job. 
Just because you suffer, dear child of God, does not make you any more or any less His servant. What we find is that we are still yet the servant of God as we suffer. We serve the purposes of God as we suffer and go through trials and difficulties. It goes on in verse number 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite uh, uh, went and did according to the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. You can underline that as well. That will help you. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. When he prayed for his friends, also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. There came there unto him all his brethren, all his sisters, and all they that had been of his acquaintances before, and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning." For he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their fathers gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. Let us pray. Father, we come to you. want to thank you for the worship. We're going to lift up to you. I pray that it would be pleasing in your sight. God, I pray that now that you would rid us of all distractions, that you would make Christ preeminent in all these things today, that his name would be lifted up today. We do pray that as we look at this passage, God, that we would see that though we suffer, though we have trials, Lord, that you use these things for a testimony of your goodness and a testimony to those who don't know you. Lord, I pray that now that you would guard my heart, my mind, my tongue, that it would be you who would fill me and preach your word to your people. Lord, open up hearts today. Open up our eyes to your word that we might respond today by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at turning trials into testimonies today, how many of y'all have ever heard of missionary Adoniram Judson? Anybody? Raise your hand high. A few of you, all right? Adoniram Judson was a missionary, a pioneer missionary in the early 1800s at the turn of the century there. Uh, he went to uh, Myanmar or Burma, as it is also called. He was the, the first to go there. He had been called by the Lord to go there with his group, and he had several who had gone with him. And what is interesting is he didn't start off as a Baptist and ended up getting converted to it on the way over. But nevertheless, as we see, the Lord had been doing a work in his heart. He gets there, and here's what happens. He goes, he walks on the beach of Burma and Myanmar, and he starts preaching, and thousands get saved the first day. No, they don't. Not even close. He doesn't know their language, and they don't know his, and he's got some work to do, but God has called him to it. No converts his first six years. That's rough. We get discouraged if we don't see somebody move or something happen in, in six minutes, let alone six years. You want to talk about patience and perseverance and faith? He only saw a couple dozen converts in the first decade of his ministry there. But he persevered. Not only did he have little fruit, but financial loss. His work often destroyed. He would complete whole sections of translating the Bible into their language just for there to be a boat wreck on a river and to lose it all. He didn't have the help of Google Translate either, by the way. What we find is he lost so much, and not only did he lose his work, but he had constant sickness. Not to mention the death of children. And after his imprisonment from the government that thought he was a spy, 
he then lost his wife. He persevered. And he persevered. Hear the words of Adoniram as he says, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordained by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. I wonder if today we view the difficulties of life as a gift of God's love and mercy. There are times in our life where we go, how was that loving for Him to allow that in my life? How is that merciful for Him to allow it? I want you to every moment of your life is a gift of His love and mercy and grace because what I deserve is hell forever. What I'm getting now is that I know Him. I'm united in Christ because of His shed blood, putting my trust in Him. I'm not saved by my works. I'm saved by His grace. I've trusted Him. And because of that, there is nothing and no one that can separate me from His love. And so even in the midst of suffering, even on my worst days, God loves me. On my best days, God loves me. And my position in Him does not, cannot, and will not change. Some might have looked at his life in his early ministry and thought God was against him and didn't really want him there. I believe what we find is that God had used him so much that they still use his translation of the Bible today. Y'all know how long that's been? 200 years. You think God was against him? No, God was for him. Dear believer, though you suffer, though things don't go your way, though there's immense pain in life, God is for you. God uses the trials of His saints for a testimony to the sinners. And Adoniram's life, many were convinced to come to Christ later in his ministry because they saw his perseverance in a steadfast faith. I wonder who God can save because they see your steadfast, persevering faith Though everyone is against you, though the world seems to be crumbling around you, that you stand firm in your faith, and God can turn your trials into a testimony. God permits suffering to produce sanctification. It is a purifying process that God is ever working on until the day of glorification. When will that day be? It won't be here. It will be when we uh, receive what we've sung about today, when we see Him and we behold Him face to face. We long and look forward to that day. We must understand that without trials, we are void of a testimony of God. You would not have the testimony of God today as, as you do without your difficulties. As a matter of fact, what we find is that when you go through difficulties and trials, what is often said as a comfort in the midst of such trials is going, hey, the Lord's going to use this. God can use this as a testimony. Hey, God is helping you through your hurt so you can help someone else through their hurt. And that's exactly the right perspective and idea. And we must get beyond ourselves. And we must see that we don't have all the answers of what God is doing. And we do not need the answers of what God is doing. Yet we know He's doing something. And all that God does for His believers is for our good and His glory. That the name of Jesus Christ might be magnified in our life. God permits trials today to produce a testimony tomorrow. Everything that you've gone through in your past, everything that you're going through right now, is so that God would use you today and tomorrow and until He calls us out of here. Do not think that your trials are meaningless or without purpose, but they are with meaning and they are with purpose. And there is no accident that God says, oh, I don't know how that happened. He knows everything in this life that you will face and He uses it to help you and to use you as a testimony of His grace. Each trial testifies as well of our insufficiencies, but testifies of His sufficiency. Paul 
wrote that he had a thorn in the flesh and he prayed for that to go away three times. And Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient. I want you to know Jesus is sufficient. His grace is sufficient for every need, every trial, every circumstance. If it wasn't, we would be without hope. But we are with hope. And and we live this life uh, with with hope and, and filled with peace, knowing not that that we have no trials and we have no difficult days, but rather that through the trials and through the difficult days, that the Lord is with us and that He is showing us that we are insufficient on our own to do anything for ourselves, let alone for His name, that He is sufficient and He equips us and enables us to suffer for His name's sake so that His name might go forth to the nations, so that His name might be testified to those around us who love us and watch us suffer so. What we're going to see in the last few verses of this chapter is that Job's trial turned into perhaps one of the greatest testimonies of all time. Still today, people say and talk about the patience of Job. Now as we look here, verses 1-5, through we're going to see the first portion of our sermon today, and that is this, the revealing in the trial. The revealing in the trial. Notice this. Throughout all these chapters, except for a few which we'll look at in just a moment, God had remained silent on Job's end. He didn't come down and tell Job, hey Job, here's what I'm doing, here's the outcome, it's going to be alright. But he was still yet with Job. But Job struggled in this, and what is revealed in trials is what we need to know. And there is a lot revealed to us, more so in trials than there are in successes. Most of us learn by the trials of fire than we do anything else. Most of us learn the hard way more so than the easy way or through triumphs and successes. Most of us have learned life lessons because we've made mistakes and because we've gone through things unimaginable and we've learned from these things because God is using it to reveal some things in this trial. We often don't see what God is revealing until after we respond to Him in faith, until after perhaps the whole ordeal is over. Most of the time you will not know what God is doing until after He's already done it. You and I want God to let us in on the secret and go, well, what's going on here? Uh, let me peek behind the curtain, if you will, and see what your, your purpose is and your plan is for every day of my life, and then I'll trust you more. Then I'll be comforted. No, faith comforts now when I can't see what God is doing, and faith trusts that God is doing something for my good and His glory when I don't even feel that it is that way. Trials reveal several things. First of all, they reveal our faith. Notice this. Job's faith in God is seen throughout his sufferings. Job does not have a perfect faith. As a matter of fact, no one here in this world, myself included, has a perfect faith. We have a perfect Savior, but we don't have a perfect faith. Our our faith is wandering. We even sing, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why do we sing such? Because we know that though we are in Christ, our hearts of flesh are still prone to wander and doubt His goodness and His plan. Especially when the heat gets turned up in our life. We often go, well, Lord, I I just don't understand. And because I don't understand now, because I can't fathom it here, I begin to doubt it here. But Job's life, turn with me for a few places. Job chapter 1. He doesn't have a perfect faith, but he has a preserving faith, a persevering faith. He has a faith that lasts, though it is tested. And as we've said before, a faith 
that is not tested cannot be trusted. Now look at this. Job chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Then Job arose. Job arose after what? After he got the news that he lost everything that he owned and that he lost all of his children in one fell swoop. He rent his mantle. He shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. What a wonderful testimony that is already. Then just over another chapter, what happens in verse number 10? Back in verse 9, his wife says to him, Dost thou still retain thy integrity? Curse God and die. Not only had he lost his family and his fortune, but now he has lost his health. He's sitting there in a pile of just feeling deserted. He's covered in boils head to toe. He's got a potsherd that he's scraping just to feel some relief. He has lost it all and feels as if, and his wife feels as if, that he's on the brink of death. But it says in verse 10, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? Meaning this, is God only in control when things go good, or is He also in control when things don't go good? And if we believe the one, we had better believe the other, or else when the other one happens, we're not going to trust Him when it is good again. We see that we must trust God when things are good and when things are bad because He is still God when all these things take place. He's still good. He is who He is. He is unchanging and infinite and mutable. He then says, and all this did not Job sin with his lips. Furthermore, back in chapter 13, you fast forward just a little bit. Chapter 13, verse 15. Very famous verse that a lot of folks use for comfort. Shane and Shane wrote a song with it. It's a good song, helpful. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, but I will maintain mine own ways before him. Job says, look, there's no specific sin in my life that brought this on, so all that I know to do at this point, even though I don't have the answers, even though I've got questions more than I've got answers, even though I've got more pain than I've got pleasure, here's what I know. Though he slay me, You know what slay means? Slaughter. Put to death. I will worship. I will trust Him. To trust God is to have faith in God. And to truly have faith is to worship Him, to know Him, to depend upon Him, to lift His name up. And the good, the bad, and the ugly. And notice we say phrases like the good, the bad, and the ugly. And out of those three descriptions, there's two things that aren't good. They're bad and they're ugly. Much of life is like that, isn't it? We have about a third of our life and we go, well, that was pretty good. And then we got two-thirds where we're going, that's bad and that's ugly. And ugly is worser than bad. And we all know this. Y'all know what worser means. Don't get too dignified. Now Job struggles, though, as we see later on in chapter 19, verse 25. Here's what he does say through his struggles and through his trials, through his questions without answer, he comes to this in verse 25 of Job 19. He says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. 
Well, dear believer, while Job couldn't fully grasp what that means, I can tell you what it means. Jesus Christ came, He died, He rose again, and He's coming again, and He will inhabit this world. He will step foot back on this earth, and you and I who are in Christ, who have suffered for His name's sake in tribulations, will be delivered from the tribulation, and we shall reign with Him on this earth. And what we find is that He liveth, meaning for Christ, He never had a beginning, and He does not have an end. He lives because in Him is life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no life outside of our Redeemer. But Job struggles with questions, but he trusts that God is still in control and will judge rightly in the end of the temporary trial. But here's what else our, uh, our trials reveal to us. They also reveal our frailty. Here we find how quickly fortune can leave. Here we find how quickly loved ones can perish. Here we find how the world can come crashing down in a moment like that. Here we find out that our health, though we're doing good one day, the next day we might be covered in sores and boils. What we find is that everything in this life is temporary and fleeting, and the only thing that truly matters is the eternal. The only thing that truly matters is Christ alone. The only thing that matters is to know Him. That's it. Unfortunately, throughout the trial, if you will, of his friends, who then, they had kept their silence in chapter 2 and things were good. Then chapter 3, Job says, I regret the day I was born. Which, by the way, is a sin. He had gotten himself to such despair that he goes, I'd be better off if I was dead. But imagine, had he not ever been born, then his children would never have been born. The riches and the testimony that God was going to produce in Job's life would have never come about. So you can wish away all your problems, but what we see is that when we wish away all of our problems, what we're wishing away is God's hand in our problems. When we wish away our problems, we're wishing away God's work through the difficulty and the adversity for His name and glory's sake. Job slipped, unfortunately, into speaking incorrectly about God. He thought he knew God. Turns out the trial really revealed some things about himself and about God so that later come chapter 42, he knows God in a way that he had not known Him before. There we're going to see, he says, I've heard you. I've heard you speak. You've talked to me. We've had communion and fellowship. I've heard your word, but now I see you. That's where faith really grows. You see, our familiarity with God can often lead into believing falsehoods about God. The most theologically sound believers today tend to struggle the most when adversity comes. Because we go, I know all these right answers, therefore, bad things shouldn't be happening to me. I serve the Lord, I tithe, I go to church, therefore, bad things shouldn't happen to me. And it's a foolish understanding of suffering, thinking that because we are declared righteous by God that now suffering should be taken away. Rather, what we're told is that now that we are declared righteous in the sight of God by the precious blood of Jesus Christ is that we will face sufferings and that the heat is going to get turned up all the more because the devil will come to steal, kill, and destroy our lives, to destroy our testimonies, to wreck our our families and our homes. What we find is that God is going to use those things and use the heat of this life to purify our faith so that we would be richer for Him. Now, I want us to understand this and hear me, hear me well. It is okay to ask God questions. Y'all know that, right? Do y'all believe that it is a good thing to go to God and ask Him questions? I do. I ask Him stuff all the time. I don't know as much as I'd like to think that I know. I've got to ask Him stuff. 
It's one thing to ask God questions. And it is another thing to question God. Do we see the difference? We may ask by faith God questions, but He does not have to give us answers. And it is another thing to put God on trial and question His rule, His purposes. As we just sang earlier, who's given Him counsel? Who's told Him what to do? Who's taught Him anything? None. Here's what happens in Job chapter 13. Job's frailty comes to light. Not only has he struggled with the idea of life and death and, and all the suffering and the questions without answer, but here in Job chapter 13, verse 1 through 3, he's responding to his friends here who have not been good counselors, by the way. They said, well, all this is happening because you've got some sort of secret sin in your life. If you just repent, you'd get it right and everything would be fine, Job. Essentially what his friends say is bad things happen because we deserve the bad things. Not the idea of that suffering simply just happens sometimes. And sometimes it happens just to bring God glory in the midst of our trials. For a testimony of His goodness. That He's just as faithful in the trial as He is out of it. He says in chapter 13 verse 1, Lo, mine eye has seen all this, mine ear hath heard and understood it, what ye know, the same do I know also. I am not inferior unto you. He tells his buds, he says, look, you ain't telling me something I ain't heard before. Y'all ever had to do that? I already know what you're telling me. So unless you got something new, what does he say? Verse number three, surely I would speak to the Almighty. There's only one Almighty, it's God. He says, and I desire to reason with God. Let me go ahead and ask this question. Can you reason with God? Can you imagine getting into a debate with God who knows all things? Knows your heart, your motivation, your end and your beginning? The one who formed and fashioned you? Can you imagine something that you created and it talks back to you and asks you why you made it thus? You see, Paul deals with that question. He says, how can the clay ask the potter, how come you done me like this? Hmm. Except how often we tend to ask God those things. Not in a seeking questions and answers, but rather in a questioning God's rule and authority over these things. Doesn't He know who I am? Why would He allow this bad thing into my life? The reason why we ask God and tell Him, don't you know who I am? We're not only not brave enough to pray it quite like that, but it's not very different in our attitude. What we find out is that we think we're much bigger. We think that we're much more in control of we think that we're much more deserving of than we really are. We are frail and finite. He is immutable and infinite. John Wesley put it this way, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Y'all ever thought about that when you're taking that magnifying glass and frying that ant on the sidewalk or whatever you might be doing? You look at something so tiny and you go, I wonder if that thing understands me. It don't, by the way. The only thing I can picture is those anthills and uh, th those things of that nature or that worm, as John Wesley puts it. They look up at us and run! Like the, like the Japanese with Godzilla in the old, old movies. Y'all remember? My grandpa loved those. The old black and white Godzillas, right? Everybody runs away. That's the only thing I can picture for them thinking because they don't know what we are. They just know they're big, they're scary, and they often squish us. Right? They got my cousin last week. Now, you bring a worm. 
I can comprehend all that God is and all that God does and why God does it. <laughs> we won't have that, will we? Job sees the frailty of his finite mind and understanding. Look at me, uh, chapter 42, verse 2 through 5. Here's what he does know, and he tells us. Job pretty much goes, I know one thing. He says to God, thou canst do everything. Meaning anything that God wants to do, he can do, because he's God. Because he's only the Almighty. There is no other. And that no thought can be withholding from thee. Meaning, I've thought things, I've spoken things, I've experienced things, I've felt things, and you know it all. Now that is both a convicting understanding of who God is and who we are, but as well as a comforting thing, knowing that God knows your suffering, He knows your heartache, He knows everything about you, and He is acquainted with your griefs, and Jesus bore your sorrows and your griefs. And He is a friend to those who have a broken and contrite heart. He goes on and He says, Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Job says it plainly. I've spoken things that I thought I understood, but it turns out I really don't. One of the greatest sins that we commit that we often don't think we commit is that we speak things about God that aren't true about God. You know what that's called when you speak something about someone that isn't true? We might call it lying. I think the better term is slander. We often slander God's name when we misuse His name or we misrepresent Him in the midst of our trials. Here, what God has done from the very beginning in chapter 1 is He has lifted up His servant and He has said, He's going to demonstrate what faith looks like and I'm going to demonstrate my goodness in the middle of His suffering. So the devil, go ahead, but I'm telling you what's going to happen. And here we are. Verse number 3, he goes on, he says, I've spoken things that I shouldn't have. He says, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. To speak of the things of God is that we have become so complacent and so comfortable with knowing God and walking with Him is that we feel far too free to speak things about Him that are not true. It is a dangerous thing to speak things about God that are not true about Him because what we are doing is we are testifying that He is this way, but He is not really that way. So it is a wrong testimony. It is a uh, misunderstanding. It is a slander when we say things that, you know, well, God, God wasn't really in control or, or when the bad thing happened, when it, he didn't really know about that or know it was going to happen. And, uh, but, but, you know, he cares about you. That is hogwash. He knows every bit of it. And he's using what the devil uses for evil. He's using for good. The devil will swing away with his hammer and pitchfork, if you will, maybe. And he uses it to destroy, but God uses it and he builds with it. He builds our faith. He builds our lives to His glory and honor. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by hearing of the ear, but now mine eye has seeth thee. Here Job sees that he is limited and that God's mind and might is limitless. Job learns contentment is not having all the answers to all life's questions. It is simply being content with seeing God for who He is. Perhaps one of the greatest needs of the hour is that we learn to be content with Christ. That we learn to be content and to know that He is enough. Though He slay me, I will trust Him. Real faith trusts without knowing the details or even the 
destination outcome. But trials as well reveal God's fullness. In this, turn with me back a couple pages to chapter 38. God has let his friends talk and Job respond. And then another fellow joined in and spoke for several chapters. And he sounds more right than the friends of Job. But even he misrepresented God. And here's what happens. God shows up and he says, you know what? Y'all have had enough time to talk. I'm going to tell you how it really is. Nothing is more frightening or comforting as the Word of God. When God speaks, notice this, <clears throat> then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. The whirlwind is often seen throughout the Old Testament and is seen where God speaks from it, that God's presence indwells it. As well, it even gives a picture and the idea of what the Israelites would deal with with the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day that would go with them to be the abiding presence of God. So God shows up and notice, they don't see God face to face. Why? Because no man has seen God and lived. He bails himself in this whirlwind in the storm. There's a reason why we sing, uh, O Lord my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all the world thy hand has made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunders, and they proclaim, my God, how great thou art. There's a reason why storms overwhelm us, and when clouds come, they might frighten us, but they remind us that as mighty as a storm in the world is, it is nothing compared to the whirlwind of God and His presence when He shows up. Here's what God says, and we're not going to read the rest of the few chapters, but we're going to pick a few verses just to help us out. He says, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Notice God says in verse 4, Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? If you were, tell me about it, Job. I'll wait. I used to love that. The teachers would go when we're talking, I'll wait. And we're like, okay, that sounds good. We'll talk. He then goes, he says, Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon? Whereupon the foundations thereof are fastened? Or who hath laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with the doors, when it breaketh forth as if it had issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud the garment thereof, and thick darkness a swaddling band for it. And he goes on and he goes on. Then over two chapters, chapter 40. Verse 6 to 14, God reveals himself all the more. Job starts to respond. He says, Behold, I'm vile. We'll get into that in a little bit. And then, verse number 6, then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Will thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Here's what Job had done the whole time in his speeches to his friends. He said, look, y'all know what you're talking about because I'm righteous before God. I ain't done nothing wrong to deserve all this. Now he's right. His sin did not bring or cause his suffering. But how quickly we go from going and saying, uh, there's no sin in my life that brought about this suffering because I'm righteous. And now we go from that to now starting to believe how righteous we really are. That our righteousness now somehow gives us a right to demand of God an answer or to demand a God a verdict or to demand God speak to us like a man? 
goes on. Well, thou, uh, verse number 9 here. Hast thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like Him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath and behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring, it, and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and, build, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that, that thine own right hand can save thee. All of your righteousness will not save you. All of your righteousness is still no plea or it gives you still yet no right to demand anything of God. Because we belong to Him, we lose all rights, yet we gain an eternal rights and privileges of being His Son that we might go to Him with every question, but not a right that we might question Him. And not that we might... Uh, not that we can go to Him with all that life's questions, but He is not required to give us an answer. But what He does give us instead is the grace that is sufficient to persevere in the midst of unanswered prayer, unanswered question, and incredible adversity. God's grace reveals His fullness through our suffering, and I only really know myself, and I only really know Him through these times in my life. Who I am in the trial is who I really am. How I respond to the trial is who I really am and what I really think about God and what I really think about myself. Verse 6-9 through nine of chapter 42. Y'all still with me? Alright. Here we then see the repenting of the trial. Verse 6-9, through nine, Wherefore I abhor myself in repentant dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these things, he, he says, My wrath is kindled against uh, your friends here, Eliphaz, you and, and your friends. He says, Because you haven't spoken like my servant Job hath. And then he calls him my servant again in verse number 8. And then again, uh, later on, here's what we see. The righteous still need repentance. We do not outgrow or outlearn or outlive the need for repentance. Now here's what we see. God's revelation naturally leads man's uh, to man's repentance because we see God as He has revealed Himself to be and who he, who he has revealed Himself to be and we find out who we really are and how frail and finite we are. Even how fleshly we often are. Repentance is the right and only response to what God reveals. There's always a need of repentance. Now we'd look at that as some sort of form of torture or abuse Rather, the life of the Christian is one of repentance. It is the action and attitude of faith. Faith is always turning away from ourself and away from the world and away from the devil and away from worldly things and to God, His Word, His work, and His will. Ultimately, repentance is not merely a feeling sorry you got caught or sorry you even did something bad. It is a turning, a change from these things. It is a setting your mind and your heart and your eyes away from what has brought you to such place and to the Lord and by faith now looking upward and outward to your Redeemer. Now here's what we find. Job chapter 40, verse 3-5 through Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. He says, I'm done. Here's what he says. Let me illustrate this for you. He says, I am vile. He says, what shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. 
God speaks and reveals Himself, and Job does this. He's got nothing else he can say. And he knows that every other word that comes out of his mouth will be futile unless it is this. I bore myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, sin did not cause Job's suffering. But notice this. Suffering revealed Job's misunderstanding about himself and his own righteousness and God's righteousness and God's rule. Now, turn your attention to the word repent, first of all. The word repent has a range of meanings, and there's two applications here of the meaning. When we think of repentance, we always view it as repentance of sin. But that's not always the case. Now, this is the first meaning, to sorrowfully and faithfully turn away from sin while turning to God. It is a change of the will, and it leads to a changing of our works to our outward man. It is an inward action that leads to outward response. The second meaning of repent here, and I believe that this is just as applicable here as anywhere else. It means to console or comfort. You and I don't view repentance as consolation or comfort, do we? We think, i got to repent because God's going to beat me over the head to death if I don't. We think God's ready to play whack-a-mole or, or to flick us like this and just to be done with us forever. Here's what we find is that repentance brings consolation and comfort. You want to know? Easiest way if you find yourself in sin to receive comfort is to repent of that sin. The easiest way to find consolation when all of life is against you and it feels that everything is coming at you, it is to turn your eyes away from those, those things and to the Lord who has saved you and who uh, helps you and, and guides you and leads you and preserves you. It's to console, to comfort. Repentance here brings consolation and comfort to rest in God's supremacy and sufficiency in suffering. Repentance is always a good thing. And I would say this even more so. Godly, biblical repentance. Not worldly repentance. Not sorrowful repentance of just feeling sorry you got caught or sorry you did something wrong. But to be truly changed and mourn the sin. But then to look to Christ for comfort and hope. Every trial ultimately is to purify our hearts and our hands in a deepening trust in God. And the only way that we find that takes place is through real repentance. Job's repentance brings him closer to God as he now gets to act as a mediator for his friends. And it says that God says, I accept Job. That's all we're looking for. All we're looking for is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. All we are looking for in this life and need in this life is for the Lord's acceptance. I don't need you to accept me. I don't need my friends and my family to accept me. Matter of fact, half of them don't. But if God accepts you, dear believer, that is all you need. And there is nothing more comforting in the midst of trial to know that you are His and you are in His hand. And though His hand might pull and prod and cast down, but He builds you up. Though you might feel cut, though you might feel a wound, yet it is His scalpel, it is His hand working a great and a deeper work in you to make you what you are not naturally. In verse 10-17, through 17, we see the rewarding in the trials. We often don't view trials as rewarding. But I don't believe that there is anything more rewarding in the Christian life than coming out of the trials. Here's what we find. Job comes out of this just to help sum this up. It says, the Lord turned the captivity of Job. You know why? Because Job couldn't do it. 
His friends couldn't do it. His wife couldn't do it. Only God can. Which tells us every moment of Job's trial was in the hand of God to begin with. God was using it for a greater purpose than what Job could see, more than what his wife could see, certainly more than what his friends can see, and certainly more than what you and I can see. Because I've never been as righteous as Job, nor will I ever be. And yet what we find is that we all suffer whether righteous or unrighteous, Suffering is a part of this life, and ultimately it is for the purposes of God that we might know Him. Now, God gives him twice as much as he had in the beginning. You can go back to chapter 1 and see all that he had, and here's what happens. He doubles it. He says, okay, you had 7,000 sheep. Well, now you got 14,000. You had 3,000 camels. Well, here's 6,000. You had 500 yoke of oxen. Well, here's 1,000. Oh, and 1,000 she-hasses. Anything else, right? Everything you lost on that dreadful afternoon, there it is. And by the way, you lost your family, you lost your kids, here's seven more sons, here's three more daughters, and by the way, you're going to have a blessing to give, not just to your sons, but to your daughters, which often didn't happen, by the way, and not to mention, they're going to be prettier than everybody else in the holler. <laughs> hey, man, it don't get much gooder than that, does it? He's got it, everything back and then some, and here's what it describes. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. Dear older saint of God, I want you to know, it ought to be the golden years, not because your health is good, not because your bank account is booming, but because you have walked with the Lord and He has preserved you through every fire, through every trial, through every temptation, through every moment of suffering in your life to bring you one step closer home to be in glory with Him. That's why it's golden. Your body might be feeling the rust, but it is golden for those that know Christ. And for every one of us to get one day closer to the Lord is one day better. The greatest reward here is not the camels, though. The greatest reward is not even that he gets sons and daughters again. You want to know the greatest reward that Job has? He now has a deeper commitment to God and a deeper communion with God. Before he had said, I, I trust the Lord because he used to speak to me and commune with me, but now he speaks to me in a way that I've never had before. And I have a communion with him that I've never had before. And dear believer, every trial is to bring you in a closer communion, a walk with him, just a closer walk with thee. Granted, Jesus is my plea. Why? Because through every trial we find that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He is with us. He's with us through it. He's with us after it. He is leading His dear children along. And what we see is that on the other side of trials, it seems that our faith has grown even a little bit. It seems that we have learned to trust Him a little bit more. Why? Because if He brought me through the worst day of my life, if He brought me through the worst season of my life, then I can trust Him for the rest to come because nothing could be as bad as it was. And even if it does get worse, I know that one day it's going to get better and even though worse may come, He is still with me and I'm still His and I have fellowship with my God. Here's what we find. Paul talks about this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Here's what Paul says, If I live, He gets the glory. If I die, He gets the glory. What an attitude. He says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, It's better for me to go. But you know what? 
Right now, no matter what happens to me, whether I stay in jail, whether I'm freed, whether I'm beheaded, no matter what happens to me, it is all of Christ and for Him. Then, in chapter 3 of Philippians, what does he say? Verse 8-11, through 11, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Meaning, I can lose everything that I might know the excellency of Christ. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He says, I got nothing. What does he say? I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. There is no winning Christ without trials and difficulties. This life is just that. But the moment that the heavens open and the trumpet sounds and we see our Savior, or the moment you take your final breath and you see your Redeemer, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, and He shows you and you see the scars that were meant for you, that, that, were, that were taken on your behalf, then it's going to be alright. He says in verse 9, "...and be found in Him." not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. But the verse continues, and the fellowship of His sufferings. If Jesus suffered, you'd better expect to suffer. But we don't suffer alone. Furthermore, he says, being made conformable unto His death. Your trial is not for your affliction, but it is for your conforming to the image of Christ. So that on the other side of all that you've gone through, you would look more like Christ. You would speak more like Christ. You would live more like Christ. You would reflect the image and the glory of Christ. That you would point others to Christ. That it would be Christ magnified. If by any means that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, then in chapter 4, what does Paul say? Verse 12 and 13. I know both how to be abased know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to, be, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It is only through Christ that you can be rich and have good times. It is only through Christ that you can suffer the worst horrors imaginable. All of life, dear Christian, is by Christ through Christ, and for Christ. Now, turning trials into a testimony, and we're done. The very end of this, we see, after this, lived Job in 140 years. God doubled his life, you may as well say. What happens? He saw his sons, and his sons' sons, as grandsons, even four generations. Four generations saw the scars of a man saved and sanctified through the suffering by grace through faith. Granddaddy Job, 
How come you've got all those marks on your body? Oh, my boy. There was a time when I had boils all over my head, my face, my back, my chest, my arms, my legs, my feet. I was sitting down. I'd lost everything and now I was on the brink of death. And the only thing, young, and I had to comfort me was scraping the wounds. But God, four generations saw the blessings upon a man of brokenness. And like a beautiful alabaster box, he's broken and the perfume of suffering for God's glory comes forth. Four generations saw trials turned into a testimony of faith. Dear parents, your kids are not only watching how you live, but they are watching how you suffer. They are not only watching how you celebrate the good times and the vacations and the, the buying of a new car or getting a new job, but they watch you all the more when everything is falling apart. And right now in your suffering or even out of your suffering, you are testifying to them either of the goodness and faithfulness of God or that it's no point to trust them. Curse God and die. Your children need to see for generations what it means to have scars that show the faithfulness of Almighty God. In the school of suffering, we not only learn lessons and take tests as students, but then we become a teacher's assistant to testify to others who are now in the fiery trial. Your trial is for a testimony. Let me ask you. Your life is speaking to others right now. How is it speaking? Your life is testifying about God and your own faith to everyone around you and especially those in your home. How are you testifying? Are you being a good student? Are we asking questions and not questioning? Do we see the testimony now after the trial? Are we able to see, oh, I've got scars, but God. Oh, I still got a couple wounds, but God. Don't waste the suffering. Embrace the trials and expect the testimony so that the name of Christ would be magnified in your life, whether by life or by death. Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. Let the storms come. Let the winds whip and the waves beat us back as long as they cast us upon the rock of ages. Dear believer, you'd better make sure that when suffering comes or even now on the tail end or perhaps you're in the heat of the battle, that you go and that you cling to the rock of ages for He clings to you. He is our only hope in suffering and trials. And may we see that God desires to turn our trials 
and to testimonies. God has permitted every trial in your life to produce an extraordinary testimony in your life. Will you let God use your life? Let's all stand this morning.